Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Canon Press. This week's episode is a talk from Douglas Wilson called The Law and the Prince, from the series Themes and Proverbs. Full series available now on the Canon app. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. I'd like to read, beginning with verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, beginning with verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you that we can come before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can, as individuals and as a corporate body, come before you dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. We thank you that our standing before you is found in him. And we thank you for the great, tremendous privilege and, and the great grace of being able to stand before you in his name. And so it's in his name we pray that you be with us this morning as we seek to understand your word as it applies to the civil magistrate, as it applies to the prince, as he submits to you, or as he ought to submit to you. Father, I pray that you'd help us understand these things. I pray that you would help us understand the culture around us in the light of our disobedience to your word. And Father, I pray you would give us Uh, grace to pray and think and study as we ought. Father, I pray you'd watch over us in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing a series through the book of Proverbs. Uh, We've been addressing a number of different topics that the book of Proverbs uh, addresses, and and one of the themes through the book is the exhortations and the requirements, the commandments and the statutes that are delivered to the civil magistrate. Now, throughout the, the message, I'm going to be using the term king and prince, and this is uh, or, or ruler, and this is simply a reflection of the language of Proverbs, uh, but I don't want anyone to think that, that this is simply God's word to uh, aristocracies or God's word to monarchies, whether someone's a, a prince or a president or a potentate or a poobah, whatever he is, uh, God's word applies to him. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, and we something we've seen in the book of Proverbs is that whatever a person's station is, wherever a person is, God's word, God's wisdom comes to that person in his station and comes to that person and tells them how to behave, tells that person what God expects of him. The principles contained here in Proverbs uh, apply to magistrates in all civil orders. Now, of course, some civil orders are structured in such a way that they are inherently rebellious just in, in just the very structure, and, and because God's word applies to them, the way, uh, the way out for them is to repent and, and dissolve the, uh, the rebellious order that they had. But there are different titles and different names and different setups in different uh, nations, and uh, no one can say, well, this only applied to an ancient Middle Eastern uh, nation. God's authority, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, applies to all. When the scripture says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, it is not, it is not drawing limits. Uh, God is always the same God. The nations are always under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are always obligated to do what he says. Many Christians have uh, developed the erroneous idea over the last 100 years, 150 years, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church, and that is all, or the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church, and perhaps your own personal ethical life as you go about your business, but he's not the Lord of the business world. He's not the Lord of, of uh, heaven and earth. Uh, but the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, everything about the earth, everything about uh, the world he's made 
is under his authority. And so he tells us, he tells us what to do. I'd like to begin by having you turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 15 and 16. In the 8th chapter of Proverbs, as, as we have seen previously, wisdom is personified and wisdom is speaking here. In verse 15, wisdom says, By me kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Wisdom says very clearly that kings reign by me, by wisdom. Rulers decree justice by wisdom. Princes rule and nobles rule by wisdom. Now, remember what I've said previously about the book of Proverbs. We, we do not have statements that should be universally applied and spread into every corner. When, when Proverbs says something about rulers, it is not referring to all rulers distributively because we will see as we go through the book of Proverbs how clearly these Proverbs address the problem of rebellious princes, rebellious kings, people who do not submit to the law of God. But this is the divine order. This is what God wants to happen. This is God's uh, decree. Wisdom is to govern how rulers and princes uh, govern. If you, uh, if you look at uh, Proverbs 16, turn over to Proverbs 16. Verse 3, excuse me, verse 13. Proverbs 16, verse 13. It says, Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. Now, this is a good example of how Proverbs uses a generalization, because counterexamples start crowding into our minds. We, we start thinking, well, I can imagine quite a few rulers who would not be delighted if someone... Uh, spoke what is righteous in their presence. Uh, and we see examples of this in the scripture when Micaiah the prophet is brought, is brought before Ahab and, and he is told, um, he's told beforehand what the king wants to hear. Uh, and, he's, and he says, well, I'm just going to say what the Lord says to say. And, and then when he gets there, Ahab says, what should I go up into battle? And, and Micaiah replies sarcastically, sure, whatever you want, suit yourself. Go up, O king. And Ahab says, how many times have I told you you have to tell me the truth? And of course, he behaves in such a way that it indicates uh, that he never wants to hear the truth. And Micaiah says, "If uh, basically, if you come back from battle today, the Lord has not spoken through me. You're not to go up. And so Ahab throws him in the slammer. Ahab says, uh, see, he, he charges him to speak the truth, and then he speaks the truth, and he reacts uh, against that. And you say, well, how, does this, how do we reconcile this? Righteous lips are the delight of kings. Doesn't this mean that a king automatically, naturally, just loves to hear the righteous word spoken? And, and why was Herod so upset when John the Baptist confronted him about his sin? These are, as we look at Proverbs, these are generalizations, and this is a statement of how God intends for it to be. This is a statement of God's pattern. The king is someone who ought to delight in hearing what is righteous. He ought to love to see someone come before him who speaks what is right. Now, th what this means is that a king, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by God, is called to be upright. A king is called to be upright. Now, this is something we're going to see all the, way out, uh, all the way through this message. Character matters. Character matters, and it matters scripturally. The character of a ruler matters. Many Modern Christians have become Machiavellian. They've become pragmatists in their voting patterns. They say, well, what I do is I go in the voting booth and I hold my nose and I vote for the person um, who is closest to the policies I agree with. I just, you know, I just do what you do what you can. But the Bible says, and we say, and some people say, well, that's how we ought to vote. We, that character really is irrelevant. What matters is how the person would vote. Uh, we're voting for a vote in Congress. We're voting for someone who make who will make certain decisions, and we shouldn't care how he gets to that uh, that place. But the Bible teaches that character matters. The Bible teaches that we we cannot assume that if the person is doing the right thing on the outside, that they are uh, where they ought to be. Turn to Proverbs twenty eight twenty eight two. We have to understand our problem biblically. Where does corruption among princes come from? 
Where, uh, why is it that we have kings and rulers who do not love to hear righteousness? The way Proverbs says that they ought to hear righteousness, ought to love to hear righteousness. Character matters. And it says in Proverbs 28.2, because of the transgression of a land, because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. Now, where, does the, where, do, where do political problems come from? From the transgression of the people. Now, we have to understand our problems biblically. And I want to emphasize this very strongly because I'm going to say some strong words directed against civil magistrates. But if we think covenantally, if we think biblically, we will understand that corrupt rulers are not the bums in Washington or the bums in Boise or the bums in Olympia or wherever it is. We, we can't say, we can't fall into an us-them mentality because we ha if we think biblically, we will see that they are God's judgment on us. They are God's judgment on us. Because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes. So if you have a, if you have a, a nation, the, the, the Hebrew in this passage is, is, um, is obscure. There, there are debates about what exactly is driving out there. Two possibilities. One is we have a proliferating bureaucracy where you have many, uh, many princes at one time. You could also uh, take it as a, uh, a land that is in political turmoil. Right? a Central American Republic that every eight months has a new ruler. There's another coup and, and someone takes over and there's a series of rulers. Well, where's this problem coming from? The, the, whatever the problem is, the Bible says it's because of the transgression of a land, because of how the people are behaving, because of how the people are living, because of the status and the standing of the people before God. God judges them in their rulers. We are represented in Washington well by people who are rebelling against God. We are represented in Washington well by people who are rebelling against God. So we have to understand polity biblically. We have to understand how the nation is to be governed biblically. And we have to recognize where the real problem is. Because pagans, and unfortunately many Christians, will get swept up into a uh, let's throw the bums out um, mentality. And if we just elect the right people, if we just have a political revolution, if we just push hard enough here that everything will be fixed. But the rot is in the people. The rot is throughout the land. It's not, uh, it's reflected in our rulers, but it's not, a, it's not caused in a top-down way. What is happening is Washington isn't causing what's happening to us. We are causing what's happening in Washington because of the transgressions of the people, because of the transgressions of the land. We are ruled the way we are ruled. I want us to think uh, biblically about this, because we're going to specify a number of sins that a ruler can fall into, but I don't want us to think about the ruler as that person over there. The ruler is not distinct and separate from us. He represents us, and we have to think biblically about it, uh, about all of these issues. I, I should I want to say one thing, um, um, mentioning a few names, just so that we don't uh, keep the message two feet off the ground and not and not plugged in. Uh, we have a real problem uh, in Christians thinking that they have a right to be, biblically speaking, right-wing or left-wing. I've mentioned this before. Uh, the issues for the biblical Christian is not right and left. It's up and down. It's black and white. It's not right-wing and left-wing. Uh, the mistake that many involved Christians who are on the right make is they think that the kingdom of God is the political cause that they're pursuing. Uh, involved Christians on the left wing think that the political cause they're pursuing is the kingdom of God, and they function different ways. But the kingdom of God, the constitution that God has given us in his word, the framework of justice is directly from him, and when we appeal to it, we should appeal to him. So you have people on the left who say, uh, whether it's someone like Ron Sider who's saying that socialism is, is the kingdom of God, and then you have uh, people on the right who take a pragmatic, right-wing, traditional values approach, a Christian coalition approach, and they say, well, this agenda, uh, the, the kingdom of God supports this particular agenda. And what we need to do is we have to break out of the, that paradigm. We have to say, we want to speak, repent, pray, and function as Christians. And we recognize that the Bible teaches on um, political issues. The Bible tells us how our civil order is to be arranged, how it's to be ordered. And one of the things it tells us is the character of the prince. What are some of the temptations and sins of the prince? 
Even though it says that wisdom speaks and says, by me kings reign and so forth, uh, Proverbs is very clear about about repudiating the idea that the king can do no wrong, a prince can do no wrong. If you look at the outline, there are a number of... um, a number of sins that are identified in the book of Proverbs for the ruler. The first is listening to flattery. The first is listening to flattery. When someone comes into political power, they have the authority and the power to accomplish certain things. They can get things done. They can get things done for your district. They can get things done for your family. They can get things done for you. And so people start to gravitate to them, and people start to lobby whatever you want, lobby, schmooze, whatever you want to call it, they begin to gravitate to the prince and say, can you do this? Gimme, 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 gimme. And one of the difficulties that we have is that we want to take handouts. We want to take handouts from our governing authorities, and then when it comes time to pay the piper, and they say, well, now I get to exercise authority over you because I'm feeding you, we say, no, this is tyranny, down with tyranny. And we... We don't understand where this all came from. It comes from our greed. Well, what happens is someone gets into power and many entreat the favor of the nobility. In Proverbs 19.6, many entreat the favor of the nobility. And every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. People start to line up when, when it comes time to receive some sort of tangible financial blessing. Many, uh, many Christians have prostituted themselves and they, because of how they conduct themselves economically, because of how their business is structured, however it is, they've structured themselves in such a way that they cannot speak clearly the word of God to a prince if it ever came time to do so. Because we entreat the favor of the nobility. We want special privileges. We want uh, someone else to be taxed to pay for our thing. We don't want to be taxed to pay for their thing. And this sort of tug of war back and forth is what modern politics is all about. And the word of God assumes that this sort of flattery and cajoling and bribery uh, is just simply wrong. So a prince must not listen to flattery. If you turn to Proverbs 29, 29.12, this talks about the formation of a cabinet. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. A ruler corrupts his cabinet. A ruler corrupts his counselors. A ruler corrupts the people that serve him by sinning in this way. It is a sin to listen to lies. It's a sin. Well, you you might say, well, I don't know. Um, I don't know whether it's a lie or not. That's what makes it a lie. Well, do you want to know? Do you ask questions? Do you, or do you assume that the world is a place in which nothing is too good to be true? A, a, ruler, a ruler who listens to lies is a ruler who is corrupting his counselors. He's corrupting the machinery of government. A ruler is prohibited by the word of God from listening to lies and liars. He must not do it. This is a, uh, it's not just a, uh, when someone lies to you in this way, it's not just uh, being sinned against. There is a type of sin which listens to falsehood, which wants to hear uh, smooth words, which wants to hear something that is pleasing to the ear. As the New Testament speaks about people seeking out false teachers, they, they want to have their ears tickled. They want to be lied to. And in many cases, a political ruler, a prince, wants to be lied to. He doesn't want to be told the truth. He doesn't want to be told exactly what the situation is. If people began speaking the truth, there would be an uproar, and uh, so people subsidize the lies, and as they subsidize lies, lying becomes a way of life, and all the counselors, all the people around, become wicked. And that's the way it is today in our culture and in our nation. A prince ought not to lie himself. If you turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 17, Proverbs 17, Verse 7, excellent speech, it says, is not becoming to a fool, doesn't belong on him, much less lying lips to a prince. Now, we have been taught, uh, again, I'd like to emphasize the didactic role of novels and film and, and those sorts of things. We've been taught again and again, well, of course, someone who is in a position of state, of course, someone there has to lie. 
Of course, lying is a way of life there. Of course, it's, it's necessary. But the Bible says lying lips are not becoming to a prince. God wants the prince, God wants the king, when he speaks, to speak the truth. When he speaks, he wants a prince to speak the truth. Some candidate for office, just imagine the hubbub if some candidate for office started doing this. He was running for office and someone asked him at a press conference or someone asked him at a debate, uh, what are you going to do about the drug problem? If elected, what are you going to do about our teenagers using drugs? And he speaks the truth and says, well, if elected to office, I promise to do absolutely nothing about the problem of our teenagers using drugs because it's not my problem. I'm not a savior. I can't help them. The only thing that can help is the grace of the Lord Jesus, the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ mediated to them through their parents, and I promise to stay completely out of it. <laughs> and he, he speaks the truth. I am not a savior. I can't heal. I can't raise up. I can't forgive sin. I can't put it right. I do promise to make it uh, safe for you to walk the streets at night. This is what the Bible has said for a prince to do. This is what the Bible wants a magistrate to do. But I promise to do absolutely nothing about these problems because I am not a savior. Our only savior, our only lawgiver is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, hubbub, I think, is putting it mildly. <laughs> that we don't want people to speak the truth. We want people to give a politician answer. I'm glad you asked me that question. My staff and I have researched this and that and the other thing. And it doesn't much matter what political party. It doesn't matter whether it's conservative or liberal. We, you get the same blur coming out of people. And the Bible says blur coming out of the mouth of a prince is unbecoming. Lies are unbecoming to a prince. Self-indulgence. Turn to uh, Proverbs 25. Again, this is something we've been propagandized in. We've been told in books, Washington novels, films, and so forth, that immorality is simply a feature of high political office. This is simply the way it is. But the Bible condemns it. These are, uh, we, we have in this portion of Scripture, uh, a portion of uh, Scripture revealed uh, to, a, um, to a woman. Excuse me. I think I got the wrong chapter. It's uh, chapter 31. In chapter 31, The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. The source of this portion of Scripture is King Lemuel's mother. She is the one who gave us this wisdom. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 3. Do not give your strength to women. Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. What happens when princes become self-indulgent? What happens when princes begin to chase women? What happens when princes begin to become drunken and they forget the law? We say, well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. People don't forget the law today. I've sometimes wondered if, if some uh, upstart in Congress took the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution and introduced it as a new measure, uh, pretending it had never seen the light of day before, and introduced it as a new measure, how many people would oppose it, declaring it to be unconstitutional and un-American and against our American way of life? There are vast portions of our Constitution which are a dead letter. They are a dead letter. They, are, they do not function. They do not operate. And they do not do so because we, our princes, our rulers, have forgotten the law. They don't forget the law. They don't administer justice. They don't do what our nation has uh, declared. To, they, they don't function within the framework that our nation has declared to be the framework for functioning. And one of the central problems in this is that people get into office for purposes of self-aggrandizement. They get into office and they begin to chase women. They begin to drink. They begin to get involved in drugs. And the Bible says that self-indulgence is a corruption to kings. It is a political corruption. If someone says, well, I just like the fact that he votes conservatively, it doesn't matter to me if he's a lush. It doesn't matter to me if he's a womanizer. The Bible says it matters to God. It matters to God, and we should have nothing to do 
with people who proclaim traditional family values, but who do not live in their own lives as though they believed it. It is very important for us to realize that self-indulgence corrupts a throne, self-indulgence corrupts a nation, and it doesn't matter what words the person is saying. What matters is what he does. Another sin is the oppression of the poor. Proverbs 28, verse 15. Proverbs 28, 15. Like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. Like a, char- like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. The Bible condemns civil oppression of the poor. The prince may not do it. He must not do it. And in a modern economy, there are many interesting novel ways in which you can, this can be done. There are many ways people can be ripped off, and not one person in a thousand will know where the money went. Not one person in a thousand will be able to figure out how the robbery was accomplished, how the oppression was performed. But God knows, and God condemns it. Another problem is covetousness. If you look at Proverbs 28, verse 16, a ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. But he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. We see here a Hebrew parallelism. Uh, A ruler who hates covetousness is compared to a ruler who um, lacks understanding, contrasted with a ruler who lacks understanding. So the ruler who lacks understanding is the ruler who does not hate covetousness. The one who hates covetousness will prolong his days. The one who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. Covetous rulers oppress the people. Covetous rulers oppress the people. How is a throne established? How is godly rule established and maintained in a civil order under the blessing of God? When the prince does what is, uh, what is righteous in the present, when a prince does what is righteous according to God's definition of what constitutes righteousness, his throne, God promises, is protected in the future. When a prince does what is righteous now, God protects him in the future. The pragmatist always wants to say, yes, it would certainly be nice to have a righteous order, but the demands of the moment dictate that we compromise here. We must compromise in this way and that way, and pragmatism rules. And of course, when this emergency is over, we can dispense with the emergency measures. When the emergency is over, we can get rid of the emergency measures, and then we will turn, we will return to a righteous civil order. It is folly and it is false. Uh, pragmatists, Machiavellians, practitioners of real politics have always argued that the demands of the moment dictate a setting aside of God's law. It is, the setting aside of God's law for princes is never justified under any circumstances for any reason. God has given his law to princes knowing what princes confront. But it's a time of war. Well, did, did they have warfare when God gave his word to princes in the Old Testament? Yes, they had warfare. Did they have national calamities? Did they have plagues? Did they have housing shortages? Did they have health care problems? Did they have all the things that we face now? Yes, they had all the things that we face now. And yet God says he establishes a throne. And he establishes a throne uh, according to certain patterns. A ruler must be a ruler who refrains from wickedness himself. If you turn to Proverbs 16, verse 12. Proverbs 16, verse 12. A ruler must be one who refrains from wickedness himself. It is an abomination, it says. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. For a throne is established by righteousness. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness because a throne is established by righteousness. Now, I want you to keep in the back of your mind, what's happening to the argument that character doesn't matter? What matters is the position paper. What matters is the little flyer that was handed out at church, at which way he's going to vote. The Bible says that the, it's an abomination for a king to be personally wicked. It's, a, it's an abomination for him to be disobeying God's law on his own time. Because, and why is this? Because a throne is established by, right, by righteousness. Another thing is very important, if you look at Proverbs 20, Proverbs 20, verse 28. Mercy and truth preserve the king. Mercy and truth preserve the king. And by loving kindness, he upholds his throne. 
By loving kindness, he upholds his throne. A king, a prince, must be a merciful man. He must not be a tyrant. He must not be an oppressor. He must not be hard as nails. He must be a merciful man. Now, sometimes uh, I, you may react to some expressions of this kind of thing. I, I know that I certainly do when I see a sign uh, by the side of the road enjoining me to buckle up because they care. Um, it rubs me wrong. I don't want them to care about things like that. I, and I don't believe that that is what meant. that is what is meant by loving kindness or by mercy. We have to understand that in the administration of law, mercy, even in the civil realm, according to God's word, mercy is a key component. Uh, the prince must be a merciful man. The ruler must be a man who hates evil and judges it. He must be a man who hates evil and judges it. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 8. Proverbs 20, verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. People who are evil, people who are wicked, people who are connivers must be people who are afraid to come into that man's presence. A king who sits on his throne in judgment has zero tolerance for people who are wicked. He has zero tolerance for scoundrels. He does not suffer fools gladly. But if he listens to lies, what happens to his, his counselors? They are corrupted, and they start to crowd around with new lies. So the ruler must be a man who hates evil and judges it. He must be intolerant of wicked counselors. Turn to Proverbs 25. He must be intolerant of wicked counselors. Proverbs 25, verses 4 and 5. Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked man from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. What do you want to do if you want to have purified silver? You take away the dross. What do you do if you want to have a throne established in righteousness and a society that exists in stability? You take away the wicked from before the king. Now, we have, we are living in a time, and we... It's, it's a tragedy that Christians don't even think much about this anymore, where we have, you know, sodomite delegations coming be before the president, and they, you know, they, they say, we want you to do this, and we want you to do that. And, and, and we consider it a great victory if somebody, for political pragmatic reasons, says, no, we're not going to grant your request. The Bible's point is certain people shouldn't even be there. Certain people shouldn't get an audience. The wicked should be chased away from before the king. The wicked should not be tolerated. What we have done is we have uh, allowed the center of debate to shift. We have, uh, we have allowed debates to come into existence where the Bible says there should be no discussion. The Bible says there should be no debate at all. So if someone says, we would like to propose that sodomy be accepted, we enter into the debate and say, no, it shouldn't be. And one of the things that happens, we find ourselves snookered because by entering into the debate, by saying, no, it shouldn't be, we have in included uh, those who would in, who would include the sodomite way of life as a way of life, and we've included it into the discussion. We've admitted it uh, to a place at the table, and let's talk about this. And they say yes, and we say no. But we're sitting at the table saying no. And this is why it's not surprising that, uh, again, referring to the Christian coalition, the uh, we could um, offer them perhaps the strange new respect award as people... Uh, as people gravitate to Washington and they begin to accommodate and they begin to uh, tolerate certain things and they begin to say, as the head of Christian Coalition has said, all we want is a place at the table. All we want is a place at the table. We don't want to, we don't want to bring biblical principles to bear and see them victorious. All we want is a place at the table. Now, what is, what is that saying? This is not a right or left issue. This is up or down. What they're saying is we want a place at the table with the wicked. That's what's being said. And this is what modern Christians are settling for. We want to be included in the discussion with those who are an abomination to the Lord. We want to sit down and say no when they say yes. But the Bible says that we must not tolerate wickedness. Now, in, in our modern era, intolerance is the one great blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, against the secular Holy Spirit. Um, you may not, that's the one thing that will not be tolerated, is intolerance. That's the one thing that must be banished, because we are challenging their deity, we are challenging their God, we are challenging their, their idol. 
The Bible says you take the dross away, you take the wicked away. Take away the wicked from before the king. And the pragmatist says bad things happen. If you take away the wicked from before the king, the coalition falls apart. If you take away the wicked from before the king, all sorts of practical things start to come unglued. Well, let them. Take away the wicked from before the king, and God is the one who establishes the throne. A prince must judge the poor faithfully. Turn to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, verse 14. The king who judges the poor with truth. The king who judges the poor with truth. His throne will be established forever. The Bible says God establishes throne, a throne not only on the basis of uh, a ruler abstaining from wickedness himself, not only on the basis of mercy, not only on the basis of a hatred of evil, but God establishes a throne based upon a king's treatment of the poor. How does the ruler treat the poor? And how have the poor fared in America over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years? We have been waging a relentless war on the poor. Now, of course, there's a lot of demagoguery involved, and a lot of this destruction has been done in the name of the poor. It's been done for the sake of the poor, but we've been waging relentless war on the poor family. We've been doing our, our level best to get to break up families. If a young girl gets pregnant, we pay her uh, good money straight up to, to make her not marry the father. We say... if. if if you marry him, then we're not going to pay you anything. But if you don't marry him, then we'll take care of you. Uh, we are waging a war on the poor. And God says he establishes, uh, establishes a throne, upholds the nation, based upon how the king judges the poor. Now, if you turn just for a moment out of uh, Proverbs, if you turn back to Leviticus, I'd like to uh, make another point that I think is very important. Leviticus 19. When it comes to a person standing before a court of justice, when it comes to a person standing before a court of justice, God prohibits two things. In Leviticus 19.15, it says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. The Bible prohibits, before a court of justice, the Bible prohibits acknowledging an old boy net network where the, the defendant is a rich golfing buddy of the judge. If you have that sort of thing, they, they belong to the same country club, they, they belong to the same network of friends. That kind of networking, that kind of acknowledgement of the, of the mighty, honoring the mighty, is a perversion of justice. On the one hand, the old boy network is excluded by God's law, as well as affirmative action, where you say, well, he is... Uh, you know, he's had such a hard life and we need to make up for it by how we treat him before a court of justice. Um, the, the Bible says that the, the court, when it comes to rich and poor, the, the court has to be blind. The court may not take into account a person's riches and may not take into account a person's poverty. The court must be blind. And you can see vestiges of this in our uh, our pictures are personifications of justice before our buildings, which are currently a joke at precisely this place. Justice used to be blindfolded. And then, uh, as we fell away from God's law, justice began to peak, and now justice has no blindfold at all. Justice shows partiality. And God's law simply forbids it. So a prince must judge the poor faithfully. Now this doesn't mean that the prince must judge the poor partially, he must judge the poor faithfully. That is, according to God's standards, according to God's law. Well, what is our responsibility? If you turn to Proverbs 25, Proverbs 25, verse 6, we must not be among those who curry favor. The Bible says, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. And do not stand in the place of the great. Don't maneuver to get invited to things. 
Don't maneuver to be to be invited to uh, a governor's dinner or maneuver to be invited to a prince's dinner or or to come before the king. A Christian citizen must not be one who's angling for favor, trying to uh, trying to uh, make contacts in order to cut deals and, and that sort of thing. This doesn't mean that the, the Christian citizen has nothing to do with this person. Uh, what should we do? Turn to 22, 22 verse 29. What is our calling? Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. What should you do? You should not say, well, the way to political influence is by making friends in all the right places. The way to the right kind of civil influence is to determine what your vocational calling is before God and give yourself to that before God to meet the needs of your family and a person who excels in his work is one who's going to stand before kings. A person who makes it his job to stand before kings is simply going to become a smooth political operator, and he's not going to have anything to show for uh, for his endeavor, for his work. We should give ourselves to what God has called us to do, and if God wants that to be used to, to provide political influence, then he is the Lord. But we should not be those who curry favor. We should not be those who uh, who, who try to get it ourselves. Christians must never be revolutionary. If you turn to 24, Christians must never be revolutionary. 24, 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change. There are always people who want to rock the boat somehow or other. We are to fear, fear God. We are to acknowledge the authorities that have been established by God. God has established them as his deacons. Now, they can become tyrannical. They can become uh, rebellious deacons. They can try and throw off the yoke that God has put on them. And the Lord will deal with them in his manner and in his time. And the Lord commonly in history has dealt with them through his people through the obedience of his people, but it should not be through agitation and revolutionary zeal. It should be through Christians being solid, hardworking, uh, vocationally called citizens who are endeavoring to honor God in everything that they do, everything that they do um, in those areas where God has uh, called them to do, and they shouldn't gravitate toward the wrong kind of political activism. If you look at Proverbs twenty-two eleven there's a very interesting comment made. There are many Christians who, see, who, who have seen the, the snare that politically involved Christians have fallen into. The politically active Christians have gotten, they, they were introduced into the corridors of power, and many of them have been corrupted by the system. They no longer acknowledge the supremacy of God's law over political life. What they do is they are, they have removed um, Christianity and are now fighting for traditional family values. They are now fighting for some sort of generic, whitewashed civic religion. They want traditional family values, and they're still agitating for that. But as I said earlier, they, they've got this place at the table, and, they, and people have compromised, and they've fallen. There are other Christians who say, see, that's what happens when you have anything to do with politics. That's what happens when you have anything to do with the prince. You get involved, you start reading about political issues, you're going to become corrupted. And they say, whatever happened to heaven, whatever happened to heart purity, whatever happened to a devotional life, we should just keep our own nose clean, try to mind our own business, and go to heaven when we die. And that's our business. Heart purity is number one. Now, this is it, it is true that in terms of my calling before God, heart purity is very important. But look at what happens with someone who is cultivating that kind of heart purity the way he ought. In verse 11, he who loves, Proverbs twenty-two eleven. he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. Now, what is that telling you? Many times people who, in marching under the banner of purity of heart, are saying, uh, well, we're going to cultivate purity of heart, but we will not let God fulfill his promise. We will not let God, in some general way, cause this stand for righteousness to have a civic impact. The person who cultivates purity of heart and has grace on his lips, that person is going to be the king's friend. 
Now remember what I said, again, about Proverbs and generalizations. But, but Proverbs remains the Word of God and true. This is a pattern that God has set into His Word and set into His world. And Christians who give themselves to diligence in their vocations will stand before kings. Christians who give themselves to true heart purity, biblically defined, are people who are going to have political influence. And part of the reason they're going to have political influence is they did not seek it as an idol. People who seek political influence as an idol find that when they get the influence, they don't push in the right direction anymore. They had to sell their soul to get the influence, and then when they get to the position of influence, they no longer want to do or no longer are able to do what God would have them do. If you would, uh, if we consider just briefly how God blesses a prince, how God blesses a nation, in Proverbs 14, in Proverbs 14, 28. We've seen that when a prince honors God, when a prince honors God, and this is very important, in his public and in his private person, when a prince honors God in his public and in his private person, God establishes his throne. Our throne, our nation, our civil order is uh, crumbling. It is coming down around us, and it is crumbling and coming down around our heads because we have tolerated sin and corruption, and we have said, everybody, Christian and non-Christian, people outside the church and inside the church, have said that character doesn't matter, a fear of God doesn't matter, a love for God doesn't matter, obedience to His law doesn't matter. And God says to us, and you don't matter. And I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to chastise you. If we neglect Him... He chastises us. If we honor Him, He honors us. We must return to His Word as we consider our duties as Christian citizens. But not only does God establish a throne, one of the things that He does uh, is by a particular means. Proverbs 14, 28. It says there, In a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in, a lack, but in the lack of people is the downfall of of a prince. Now, we, we live in a culture that is demanding that everybody have 1.7 children, and I think the only reason they want that many is so that they have something for the daycare workers to do. They, we don't believe what the Bible says about family anymore. We don't believe what the Bible says about um, households anymore. We don't believe what the Bible says about a culture anymore. It says, in the multitude of people is a king's honor. But in the lack of people, is the downfall of a prince. And we see this happening around our globe. We see people, particularly in Europe, there are places where, uh, because, the, uh, because these nations, in rebellion against God, have been refusing to replenish themselves, have been refusing to bring up children, have been refusing to have more than their allotment. There are all sorts of services that they don't have people to operate and work. And so people from other nations are coming in and taking over these occupations, and the people have discovered that what they've done is they've dismantled and taken down the walls. Uh, through a lack of people, a prince is ruined. And what have our princes been demanding for the last 20 or 30 years? We want a greater lack of people. We have too many people. People are bad. People are, um, people are a corruption. People are a nuisance. People are a problem. The Bible teaches that for a wise prince, people are a blessing. For a wise prince, people are a blessing. For a foolish prince, they, don't, they can't feed the ones they have, and so they want fewer. They think the problem is in the number of people. They have, uh, they have a thousand people, and they can't feed them, and they say, well, if we had 500, we could feed them. And so they go down to 500, and they can't feed them, and they get down to two, and they can't feed them. The problem is not people. The problem is a, an ignoring of God's principles. We ignore God's word. God also gives honor and glory in the dignity of a king's ability and station. God is the one who exalts. God is the one who lifts up. And God is the one who throws down. But it does say in Proverbs 25, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. The Bible teaches that there is a dignity that accords with civil office, and we should not disparage that, that dignity. But what happens when kings rebel, when princes rebel against God's word, and that dignity, that authority, that honor is corrupted and turned aside, it becomes, um, it becomes vile. And God's chastisement 
falls upon it, and it falls upon a people who were foolish and rebellious enough to think that they could be detached from those who represent them in the civil realm before God. What is the way out? Many Christians are beginning to understand the extent of our cultural disintegration. Many Christians are coming to realize just how bad things are. But not very many Christians are coming to realize that the problem is in the church. The problem is not in non-Christians acting like non-Christians. The problem is in the church acting and thinking like non-Christians. In the church, we don't discipline. In the church, we don't teach the law of God. How can we expect them to teach and apply the law of God in the civil realm when we don't teach and apply the law of God in the ecclesiastical realm? How can we expect them to do, who do not profess faith in Christ, what those who profess active allegiance to Christ refuse to do and will not do? The church in America today is in dire need of reformation. If God is merciful to our nation, the reformation that begins in the church is going to have an impact on our nation. But there is nothing that we can do beginning in the political realm that is going to save us. Nothing can save us there. It has to be God's people returning to God's Word as their supreme and final authority. It has to be Christians coming back to an understanding of sola scriptura, Christians coming back to an understanding of justification by faith alone, Christians coming back to an understanding of what it is to be a Christian man, a Christian woman, submissive to the law of God, glad, not for, as a means of justification, but as a standard of righteousness. God's definition of righteousness never changes. And so as we come back as God's covenant people to an understanding where we renew the covenant with Him, where we confess our sins, and we, we pray that not only as we confess our sins here in this congregation, but all across the country, God's people, as they gather together week to week, would confess their sins. Not just their individual sins, but confess their corporate sins. Confess their civic sins. Confess the fact that we don't know what God's law says in this book to the magistrate, and for many years we have not cared. There is much to confess. There is much to lament as we come before God. And we are now coming um, to the Lord's Supper. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, we should be very grateful that God has provided a perfect provision of forgiveness for our sins because we are a sinful and needy people and we are under God's chastisement. And as we are under God's chastisement, we should take it quietly, submissively, humbly, and reverently, trusting in Christ's merits and Christ's righteousness alone to forgive us our sins. If um, Let's pray together. Father, we, we ask that as we turn from this message to a commemoration of the supper that you instituted in your Son. I pray that you would encourage and strengthen us. I pray that we would acknowledge our sinfulness. I pray that you would stir us up to study your word. I pray that you would uh, touch our hearts so that we would understand what your word and what your law and what your gospel teach. Father, I pray that you would give a great recovery of understanding to your people. Father, we confess that by and large we are a very stupid people. Father, we confess that we have been blind. We confess that we have been distracted by what the world has said they had to offer, and we confess that having obtained it, we have discovered how empty it is. Father, I pray that you would bring us back to an understanding of the riches of your grace. And Father, I pray that as we turn to commemorate uh, this supper, this covenant meal, that you would strengthen us by faith in our understanding. Father, I pray you watch over us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode, listen to the full series, Themes and Proverbs, available now on the Canon app.